In addition to MCAST, a subscription to eMedHome.com includes over 1,000 video lectures from the best EM conferences, with more added all the time. View on any device whenever and wherever you want. All this and so much more, including hundreds of CME credits each year for the low cost of only $99. eMedHome.com. For 20 years, the homepage of emergency medicine. Subscribe now. Happy New Year, everyone. This is Amal Matu at University of Maryland School of Medicine, and welcome back to another brand new year of EMET Homes EMCast. Even though we're starting 2022 with some continued COVID concerns, well, maybe there is a little bit more light at the end of the tunnel that we're hearing about from the epidemiologists and the public health officials. And we'll keep our fingers crossed that this time we are going to be getting out of the tunnel or at least very close to it. I hope everyone out there is healthy and had a safe and happy holiday season and new year. And we're committed to making sure that at the very least, this year of EMED Home is going to be the best ever. Joining me for a few topics this month are going to be some really great colleagues from within and just outside University of Maryland. We have a couple of more of the recorded lectures from our recent fantastic Crashing Patient Conference. We've got two lectures this month. One is going to be on the crashing cirrhotic patient, one of the really scary patients that we see certainly in the inner city and also out in the community. These patients, when they are decompensating rapidly, they can be really, really difficult to take care of. So Dr. Joe Martinez, our abdominal and GI expert, is going to be sharing his thoughts about how to manage these patients. And we're also going to have a really nice overview for an, from a newcomer on EMCast, Dr. Dominic Williams. He's going to be spending some time talking about, well, kind of giving an overview on psychiatric emergencies. Now, with both of these recorded lectures, the speakers will occasionally refer to slides, but uh, in going back through the audios, it's fairly obvious what they're talking about. So you're not going to be missing anything by just listening to the audio and not seeing the visuals that they posted up here. Really, I think the audio content of these lectures is absolutely fantastic. And between these two recorded lectures, we're going to have a discussion of a recently published article talking about genitourinary emergencies in the elderly. And joining us for that discussion are Dr. Danya Koja, who has been on the EMCast a handful of times before, uh, talking about geriatric emergencies, and also another newcomer to the EM cast, Dr. Rebecca Rubenstein. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and jump right in because we have a lot of stuff to talk about this month. Well, we're going to start things out with a talk by Dr. Joe Martinez. And Joe has uh, established a niche in abdominal and GI emergencies. He lectures nationally and to some extent internationally as well, and also at various national board review courses on this particular topic of GI and abdominal emergencies. And he's really our go-to person for any disorder in the belly. He gave a, a really great talk at the recent Crashing Patient Conference. So I'm going to play the recording from his talk and we'll summarize some things at the very end. Dr. Martinez uh, completed our combined emergency medicine, internal medicine program way back a handful of years ago. And he is now Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Associate Dean for Medical Education in our School of Medicine. Let me welcome Joe Martinez to the pseudo podium here, and he will get day two started. Thank you very much. Welcome to everyone. 
For those of you that are joining us from other time zones, uh, I hope you've had your coffee, or if it's later in the day somewhere, I hope you're having some, some other beverages. But we're going to talk this morning about cirrhosis. And because we're here in Baltimore, it's not really 2 a.m., but as you well know, it's always 2 a.m. at Crashing Patient General Hospital. So as we're getting into our case, it's 2 in the morning, and you go in to see your patient and get a little bit of information from them. So EMS was activated because the, the patient's family called and said that the patient had altered mental status and some shortness of breath. They're known to have cirrhosis, which is based on hepatitis C and alcohol use, but luckily they were able to get into treatment and they're not actively drinking anymore. A BLS unit was sent to the residents and when they got there, they thought that the patient looked pretty ill. So essentially they just scooped the patient up and they brought him straight to your emergency department, loaded him into a room and you're there evaluating them now. And en route to the hospital, the patient, of course, vomited blood. So when you walk in the room, this is what you see. Something that most of us have seen through the years. Patient is not known to be pregnant. This is a patient that, uh, again, has known decompensated cirrhosis. And as you might have guessed, Joe is showing the audience a picture of a person with what looks like a gravid belly, but is actually a belly full of acidic fluid from cirrhosis. And just to top it all off, the patient's covered with blood from hematemesis. So how are we going to approach this patient? Well, first, let's see what our astute uh, nursing colleagues have gotten for vital signs. Patient has a little bit of a low-grade temperature. They're a little bit hypotensive. They're tachycardic. They're tachypnic. And their saturations are a little bit low. So right off the bat, nothing that's making you feel really great, right? Otherwise, this wouldn't be in the crashing patient conference. This would be in the stable for outpatient discharge conference. So, what else do we see about this patient? Well, patient's mental status, not great. They're obtunded, you could describe them as nearly comatose, they're visibly jaundiced, and of course they have blood around their mouth, on their t-shirt, all over the medics as well. They have globally decreased breath sounds, and you notice that they have almost no breath sounds on their right side. And as we showed you in that picture, they have very tense ascites. So as you're putting some of this together, you can make sense of some of the breath sounds, right? Because the, the ascites are so large that they're really pushing up on the diaphragm. You can see that the patient's tachypnic because there's not a lot of diaphragmatic excursion. And so you're already thinking through what you may have to do to stabilize this patient if they don't improve with some oxygen. Now, again, your nursing colleagues are, are on the ball. And not only have they placed one IV, but they've placed two IVs. And not only have they placed two IVs, but they've actually taken the extra step and they've placed three IVs. So this is one of those few unfortunate patients with cirrhosis that has three arms. But no, I'm just kidding. But they do have IV access. So one problem has already been solved for you before you get in the room. So we won't focus too much on IV access in cirrhosis today. As part of your physical exam, you bring in your ultrasound. So our ultrasound colleagues have sort of ingrained this in us a little bit, and that's why we'll have several of our focus on POCUS sessions today, is how important ultrasound can be in the care of our critically ill patients, right? So the first thing that you do is you say to yourself, well, they look like they're full of ascites, but let me just make sure that what I'm seeing with my eyes, I can really believe by looking at it with my magic ultrasound rays. And so you put the ultrasound on the belly, and sure enough, they have a belly full of ascites. You can see a few uh, loops of bowel sort of floating in this giant pool of ascites. And then you think to yourself, as you're getting ready to power the ultrasound machine down, well, why was I having so much trouble hearing those breath sounds on the right side? And so you decide to take a look with your ultrasound, and this is what you see. You know, you can see this, this poor little lung here uh, 
sort of floating in a pool of pleural effusion, right? So you can see the, the diaphragm there a little bit over, up over there, and then this little tail of lung there floating in all this pleural fluid. And so now, all of a sudden, you're thinking, well, I've got another issue that I need to think about uh, if this patient doesn't get better with oxygen. And oh yeah, let's not forget what happened en route. The patient is completely covered in blood. What are we thinking? What do we got so far here? What are we dealing with in this critically ill patient? Well, certainly we need to think that we're dealing with variceal bleeding. I think you all jumped to that as soon as you heard that the patient had vomited blood en route, right? But what else could it be? Well, his mental status is pretty poor. And of course, there's lots of reasons why his mental status could be poor. He could be septic, it could be a drug intoxication or just a side effect of a drug that's metabolized through the liver could be all sorts of other things. But, of course, with cirrhosis, it could also be hepatic encephalopathy. So let's think about that. Could have an infection, right? The patient had this low-grade fever when they got there, so it could be an infection of some sort. And, you know, if you're looking at common things being common, maybe this is SBP, so spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So we've got to keep that in the back of our mind. And then you've got this big pleural effusion on the right side with almost no breath sound. So could this be a hepatic hydrothorax that the patient has? And then, I haven't even given you any lab values yet, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, could this be hepatorenal syndrome as well? Well, I'll tell you, I'll jump right ahead to the punchline here. Because this is the crashing patient course, yes, patient has all of these things, right? So how are we going to prioritize this, and how are we going to uh, deal with these multiple different issues in somebody that's chronically ill to begin with? So what are the priorities with this patient? A lot of things you need to address, but how do you start? Well, of course, we always start in emergency medicine with the airway, right? So think about the airway. And, you know, I find that sometimes in medicine, you know, as we're asking our, our learners different questions, sometimes in medicine, the questions are actually pretty easy. So here's an easy one for you. Is this a risky airway? And uh, I didn't do poll everywhere for this, but I will make it a multiple choice question. Yes or no? And I think most of you are going to say, yes, this is, a, this is a risky airway, right? But now the questions get a little bit harder. So how do we approach this risky airway? So this patient is already hypoxic. They're a little bit hypotensive. They were actively vomiting blood, at least right before they, they came to your door. So we've got to think about our preparation. We've got to think about how we're going to prevent this patient from aspirating more than they probably already have. And we've got to think about how we're going to pass the tube effectively. So as we're thinking about preparation, First of all, this is not the time to, you know, try to be a cowboy and do everything by yourself. So even if you practice in a, in a shop where you're the solo practitioner, you want to get as many helpers as you can for an airway like this. So make sure it's not just you and a nurse or you and an RT in the room. You want to get as many hands in the room as you can because you're going to need lots of help with positioning, with suctioning, with maybe uh, doing bag valve mask ventilation, uh, even with just securing the tube, things like that. So making, making sure that you have adequate help as well. And in an airway where there is lots of blood or lots of vomit or lots of food particles or things that are going to make it challenging for you to obscure your view, you can never have enough suction. So this is not, again, the time to have one suction device in the room. You want to try to get at least two suction devices and maybe even more if you, if you, have, if you have them. And of course, we're going to really throw the kitchen sink at this, at this risky airway. So thinking about putting nasal cannula oxygen on, turning it up to 15 liters, this is a patient that you could consider delayed sequence intubation, right? Because this is a patient that was hypoxic to begin with. So maybe you want to give them a lower than normal dose of ketamine. You want to start with some non-rebreather, maybe add some CPAP, try to get their oxygenation up. 
and then you also want to think about the dosing of your medication. So somebody that's critically ill like this, that's already hypotensive, really want to cut down on your induction agents. Think about going up on your paralytic agents as well. As you're thinking about preventing aspiration, certainly some people might think about putting an NG tube down, and, and that's not the wrong thing to do. Try to clear out the stomach, get as much of the blood out there as possible. But there are some downsides to that. And, and I'm not really talking about the fact that there's varices in the esophagus and you could hit one with the NG tube and, and maybe cause worsening bleeding. This, this patient is already bleeding. They already look sick. So if you can get an NG tube down easily, I think that's, that's not a bad idea. The downside would be with this patient that has really altered mental status, if they're combative with you, if they're fighting the tube, if the tube is making them vomit more, um, then you're going to be in a, in a worsening situation because they're going to start vomiting more and start aspirating in front of you, and your airway is going to go from a risky airway to a crash airway. So some other things that you can do, certainly you can use medications to try to clear the stomach, and these can be quite effective. So 250 milligrams of erythromycin, 10 milligrams of, of metoclopramide, these prokinetic agents can really help you clear the stomach without some of the, uh, some of the downsides of NG tubes. And then how about passing the tube? What are some tips for passing the tube? Well, this is not really an airway lecture, but let's talk about a couple of, couple of things here as well. First of all, you need to have an experienced operator. So I'm an educator. I love to educate medical students and residents and uh, learners of all levels, but this is really probably not the time to let the third-year medical student try the airway or your off-service intern try the airway. This is a really risky airway. So this is one where you want your best hands on deck. So get your most experienced operator, somebody that you have a lot of confidence in to let them, let them do, uh, do the first pass at the airway as well. Uh, this is also the time that you want to try some, some different airway uh, techniques. Uh, and the one that is clearly recommended in this case would be, would be salad or suction-assisted laryngoscopy with airway decontamination. Again, lots of different information out there about how to do this. But in broad strokes, really the, the concept here is that you're leading with your suction catheter uh, before you put your laryngoscope tip in. So really sucking out the oropharynx and hypopharynx as best you can. Then you're using your suction catheter to get the tongue out of the way and leading it down to the epiglottis, leading your, your uh, laryngoscope tip down there. Once you see the epiglottis, then you park your suction catheter over on the other side of the mouth and you're able to let it be continuously sucking while you pass the tube. It's a really helpful technique in somebody that has a mouthful of blood or a mouthful of vomitus as well. So think about using this technique. If you're not familiar with it, lots of great YouTube videos out there. Take a look at it, practice it uh, in, in your airway labs, and then really think about using this in your next risky airway. How about our next priority? Right? So if this is what your resuscitation room is looking like by this point, you know, your next priority once you've secured the airway is probably going to be doing something about this bleeding. And this seems like a pretty obvious slide here, right? But any patient that has known cirrhosis, or maybe they don't have a diagnosis of cirrhosis, but when you look at them, they clearly have stigmata of liver disease. If they come in with GI bleeding, again, we always assume the worst things, right? And the worst thing in these patients is ver acute variceal hemorrhage. So we're not going to assume that this is some esophagitis or gastritis or even peptic ulcer disease. We're going to go for the big bad things and assume that this is a variceal bleed. Now, if you have a variceal bleed that looks like this, where your resuscitation bay is covered in blood, your medics are covered in blood, your patient is covered in blood, um, these are the ones that really get your attention, right? So I think we've all probably cared for variceal bleeds in the past. And even within that group of patients, variceal bleeds pass a long spectrum, right? So there are some variceal bleeds that 
you think to yourself, yeah, this is a variceal bleed, but they're pretty stable. You know, GI's here, they're going to scope them. They'll probably be able to ban this pretty easily. And then there's the one where you have your whole team there. There's blood hitting all the walls of your resuscitation room. And those patients are actively trying to die in front of you, right? So let's talk a little bit about the stepwise approach to this. When you have a patient that has acute variceal hemorrhage, you have a couple of steps that you need to go through. And again, these are not really sequential steps. We're doing a lot of these all at once, right? But essentially, you need to resuscitate the patient. You need to treat the variceal bleed. You need to get source control. And then there's some adjunctive measures, right? So as we're thinking about resuscitation, certainly blood products can be a very helpful thing. If a patient is losing blood, you want to replace their volume mostly with blood. But a couple cautions here now. There are a, there's a lot of robust data coming out now that maybe we should be doing some of our resuscitations um, guided by TEG or th thromboelastography. And the reason for that is that when you look at our traditional markers of coagulation in cirrhotic patients, they really don't tell us the whole story. So it's really hard just by looking at things like your INR and your platelet count to figure out if the patient is hypercoagulable or if the patient is at risk for, for bleeding. And so using things like TEG can sometimes guide our resuscitation a little bit. Now, that being said, many of us don't have access to TEGs in, in a rapid fashion, and many of us don't feel all that comfortable with TEGs. So again, we may be getting back to using blood products much like in our trauma patients in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio. The other caution, though, as you're resuscitating is remember that even though these patients are bleeding from uh, the venous system and it's an arterialized type of bleed, remember that your driving pressure for these bleeds really is the venous side as opposed to the arterial side. So if you're thinking about your patient that comes in, they've got acute variceal hemorrhage, they're very volume depleted, uh, their, their mean arterial pressure is low, their CVP is low as well. As you start resuscitating them, maybe their CVP goes from 3 to 6, and their mean arterial pressure goes from 55 to 60. You know, you really haven't changed their mean arterial pressure by all that much, 15%, 18%, but you've changed their CVP by 200%, and that's really what the driving pressure for this is. So until you have the third step, which is the source control, you really don't want to over-resuscitate these patients because the, their bleeding can actually worsen. Now, as soon as we can, we really want to start treating the variceal bleeding with some vasoactive medicines. And if you're watching here in the United States, really, your options are octreotide. So octreotide is something that we're all familiar with, I think. Uh, 50 microgram bolus followed by a 50 microgram infusion. Those of us that have been practicing medicine for a while have probably seen great results with octreotide. It actually is a very effective medicine. Now, octreotide has not actually been shown to improve mortality in acute variceal bleeding, although it does actually decrease the rate of bleeding in acute variceal hemorrhage. Medications available outside of the United States, like terlipressin, have actually been shown to have some mortality benefit but again, are still not approved. So if you're watching in the United States, you're, you're not going to be able to use terlipressin and you're going to be using octreotide. Now, again, I practice here at the University of Maryland. If this is my resuscitation room, I have access to a lot of different uh, adjuncts to help get source control for this. So I can call my GI consultants, and if I say I've got this really uh, critical variceal bleeder, they're going to come in, even if it is 2 a.m., they're going to come in, they're going to try to help me control that bleeding, and that's going to happen in a fairly short time frame. But if you don't have access to 24-hour GI, uh, you don't have access to interventional radiology that could do an emergent TIPS procedure, you have to think about what you do have access to. Because remember, you're going to have a gastroenterologist on call, but their own society guidelines say that an acute variceal hemorrhage endoscopy should be performed within the first 12 hours. 
So if it's two in the morning, you might be on your own uh, attempting to resuscitate this patient without the help of your endoscopist, uh, and that's supported by their own guidelines, right? So that's 12 hours is a very long time to be dealing with a patient in a room that looks like this. So it's important to think about what other adjuncts you have. And, of course, I'm talking about things like uh, esophageal balloons, so your Blakemore tube or your Minnesota tube uh, or your Linton tube, and reminding you that these are not always intuitive devices. And so when you finish this conference today uh, and you go back to your shop, remind yourself what type of tube you have and how you are supposed to put that particular tube down because they're really not all that intuitive uh, to be able to do that. Also think to yourself, what happens in my place if I do have this variceal bleeder that comes in at 2 in the morning? What are my resources? Am I going to have to put a balloon down and transfer them somewhere? Am I going to have to put a balloon down and stabilize them at my own hospital? In which case, maybe I'm asking a surgeon to come and do a surgical shunt as, as well. Even if you work at a tertiary or quaternary care center, it's a good idea to remind yourself how to put these balloons down because in some cases of variceal bleeding, even if your endoscopist uh, is, is right at your bedside and they look down there, they may not be able to stop the bleeding. That's getting a little bit rarer these days. Endoscopy techniques are getting more sophisticated, and in the vast majority of cases, they're able to get the bleeding stopped. But if they can't, you may need to put a balloon down to temporize this until something else can be done. The last thing that sometimes your GI consultants will do uh, that I'm just mentioning for completion is actually there's some new data that says that if they can't control it through endoscopic measures, while they're down there, they can actually deploy a self-expanding metallic stent, which can sometimes buy you time instead of putting down a balloon. So I included that up there as well. And then finally, it looks like the last step, and it seems like a really small thing, and I know that most people have heard this before, but please don't forget to get antibiotics on board in, in these patients as well. So antibiotics can really help both with bleeding, uh, with subsequent inf infection, and they improve mortality. So I already told you that octreotide doesn't actually improve mortality in these cases, but antibiotics do. So get your antibiotics on board very early. All right, moving on from our variceal bleed. When all was said and done and we evaluated this patient, it really looked like the patient's mental status was predominantly due to hepatic encephalopathy. So let's take a couple of minutes just to talk through some of that. It's really not surprising that that happened with this patient because the two most common uh, precipitors of hepatic encephalopathy are infection and variceal bleeding. And infection can be anything. It can be SBP or it can be some of the other infections that we'll talk about in a couple of slides. Now, importantly, when you look at the subset of patients that have both variceal hemorrhage and hepatic encephalopathy, their mental status tends to clear more rapidly with early treatment of the hepatic encephalopathy. Now, I know in, the, in our patient here at the crashing patient, this is not a priority is to start treating them for their hepatic encephalopathy. But after you've stabilized their airway, you've gotten some source control of their variceal hemorrhage as they're waiting for their, for their ICU bed, this is a good time to get your antibiotics on board, as we mentioned before, but also start treating your hepatic encephalopathy. Treating hepatic encephalopathy, lactulose, again, still remains the mainstay of our treatment. But as we're seeing more and more patients that are on lactulose as outpatients, a, a good second-line agent to add in is adding in rifaximin. If they've been compliant with their lactulose, but they're still uh, developing symptoms of hepatic encephalopathy, adding on rifaximin can be really helpful. In some of these patients, again, this patient's going to be intubated, will then have an NG tube probably placed, unless they have an esophageal balloon in place or something. If you're not able to get lactulose in from above, you can give it as a retention enema, and that has a lot of utility in treating hepatic encephalopathy as well. Moving on to infections. So remember, this patient had a low-grade fever. We were worried that they had an infection. 
This is very, very frequent in patients with cirrhosis. So of those patients that are admitted to the hospital that have known cirrhosis, somewhere between 30% of them to 50% of them will have an infection either upon admission, the time of admission, or sometime during their hospital course. SBP, we talked about a little bit, is very, very common. And it's hard to exclude this without a paracentesis. So as you think about your patients that come in with decompensated cirrhosis, uh, if they're being admitted to the hospital, there's very little reason why they should not undergo a diagnostic paracentesis. So I'm not talking about taking off large volumes of acidic fluid. I'm talking about just doing a di diagnostic tap to, to get your cell counts, get your cultures, and see if they have SVP. And the reason I say to do that is, is a couple of different reasons. One is while we all think about that SVP should present you know, very classically with fever, with abdominal pain, perhaps with signs of hepatic encephalopathy, it can be very cryptic to diagnose as well. And again, if you look at big population studies, when a patient with cirrhosis is, is admitted to the hospital for any reason, if you were to do a diagnostic tap on every patient, you would find SBP in about 30% of those cases. So again, very hard to exclude just based on history and physical alone. I urge you to do diagnostic taps uh, frequently and early because there's data to show that the, in patients that are ultimately diagnosed with SBP, any delay in the time to doing the tap and making the diagnosis and initiating antibiotics actually increases patient mortality. And again, look at that word. I'm not talking about morbidity. I'm talking about actually increasing mortality. And the other reason to do this is because if you make the diagnosis of SBP, you can improve their mortality by administering albumin. All right, and we'll talk about albumin in, in another slide or two. Now, besides SBP, other infections are common. And when a patient with cirrhosis is admitted to the hospital with any infection, their odds ratio for death goes up almost fourfold. So what are some of the common infections besides SBP? It's all the things you would think about. It's pneumonia. It's uh, skin and soft tissue infections. It is UTIs. And it's just occult bacteremia without a, without a known source. Again, we all have a subset of patients that we think about that when we diagnose an infection in those patients, we start with very broad antibiotics. Think, think about patients that have neutropenic fever. You know, you're not using narrow-spectrum antibiotics. You're using very broad-spectrum antibiotics. Patients that are immunosuppressed for any reason, whether they're a transplant patient or they're getting chemo or they're on chronic prednisone, we start broad on those patients. I would really urge you to lump patients with cirrhosis into this same group. Uh, so patients with cirrhosis... If you look at them when they're admitted to the hospital with infection, if they're treated with narrow-spectrum antibiotic uh, just tailored towards what the likely source is, their mortality is actually higher than if they're treated with broad-spectrum antibiotic until definitive culture data gets, gets back. And importantly, it's really important to know where you practice and what your local patterns of resistance are because patients with cirrhosis often have significant antibiotic resistance. So they undergo a lot of different procedures, from paracentesis to thoracentesis to urinary catheterization to LPs to all sorts of different procedures. So they're at very high risk for nosocomial infections. And patients with decompensated cirrhosis spend a lot more time in healthcare settings than do patients without cirrhosis. They spend a lot of time in the hospital. They spend a lot of time in outpatient clinics. They spend a lot of time in doctor's offices. So lots of antibiotic resistance in patients with cirrhosis. So it's really important to know your own local pattern of resistance. All right, as we're working through our list of things, this was what our patient's uh, x-ray looked like. So as you're looking at this right side here, you know, you see this really dense area of consolidation in the right lobe, and maybe there's a little meniscus there. It's hard to tell just from looking at this. Is this an effusion? Is this a big, socked-in, right lower lobe pneumonia? 
But as you look at their lateral, lateral decubitus here, you can see that there's a very clear meniscus there. And, of course, we had our wonderful ultrasound data. So we know that this is a free-flowing pleural effusion uh, and most likely hepatic hydrothorax. So what is a hepatic hydrothorax? Sometimes people, uh, you know, we throw around terms and then we realize, well, I've been using that term for a long time, but I don't really understand what that means. So a hepatic hydrothorax, essentially think of it as the flow of ascites across diaphragmatic defects, really small diaphragmatic defects. So typically this will happen in the right hemithorax, and they can be incredibly large. They can take up the whole uh, right hemithorax at times. They can also become infected, and the risk for infection goes up with each thoracentesis. And the overall risk of developing what's called a bacterial empyema in a hydrothorax is about 16%. So it's not really common, but it's not, it's not a risk that's insignificant either. Now, importantly, the therapy for hepatic hydrothorax is really to try to get control of the ascites. So this is typically through instituting diuretics like furosemide and spironolactone. It could also be by doing large volume paracentesis on a frequent uh, basis. But for us in the emergency department, if we in initiate somebody on diuretics, it's not going to improve their hepatic hydrothorax for days or weeks to come. So we're often faced with, some, with doing something a little bit more emergent to try to help them, especially if they're in respiratory distress, which they often can be from these, uh, from these hepatic hydrothoraces. Remember, with our patient, they had very little diaphragmatic excursion to begin with because they had so much ascites. So their diaphragms are really pushed up. They have very little pulmonary reserve. And then if the right lung subsequently fills up with a hepatic hydrothorax, now they're really trying to oxygenate and get gas exchange from a very small area of their left lung. So this patient may need a thoracentesis just to improve their, their pulmonary mechanics. Again, mostly for completeness sake, there are lots of other ways that chronic hepatic hydrothoraces can be treated. Pleurodesis, where they uh, do a laparoscopic surgery or even just inject different things like talc or bleomycin to try to get the visceral pleura and the parietal pleura to really sort of become roughened and adhere to each other to prevent that hydrothorax from, from reoccurring is one method. And sort of a last-ditch effort is actually you can do laparoscopic diaphragmatic repair of those, of those defects. So if you do an MR or even if you use Doppler ultrasound, you can actually see the flow of ascites across the diaphragm, and you can localize these diaphragmatic defects, and the surgeons can then actually try to repair those with mesh, which you can imagine in a patient with cirrhosis is fraught with, with many complications. What I want you to know from this slide, though, is, is really very little of that. What I want you to know is looking at this x-ray, and what do, what do we see here? We see a pigtail catheter. And the take-home point that I want you to remember about hepatic hydrothorax is that this is really uh, something that we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be putting chest tubes or pigtail catheters into these patients. It creates tremendous volume and protein loss and actually decreases their, their chance of surviving their hepatic hydrothorax. So really, no chest tubes in these, just simple thoracentesis as needed. Now, I didn't give any labs for this, but I hope you'll just take me on faith that this patient actually did have hepatorenal syndrome as well. So as we talk about hepatorenal syndrome, again, that's a little bit of a catch-all term. There are a couple of different types, and just going into it uh, sort of briefly, type 1 is the type that we get most concerned about. So type 1 is much more acute in onset, and it's much more severe. So your patients will often have creatinines above 2.5, uh, and this will develop very rapidly. And those patients will have a mortality rate that is really through the roof, and most of them are not going to survive for two weeks. Type 2 is a little less 
uh, rapid in onset. It's more of a chronic condition, and it's less severe where the creatinine maxes out at about one and a half. Importantly, hepatorenal syndrome for us in the emergency department is often triggered by infection, with the most common infection being SBP. And technically, you can't make this diagnosis in the emergency department because part of the diagnostic criteria is that their renal function does not improve after uh, an albumin and diuretic challenge and 24 hours of monitoring. So unless your lengths of stays are really high, I'm sorry, not 24 hours, 48 hours of monitoring. So unless your lengths of stays are really high, you're probably not going to be able to make this diagnosis in your emergency department. Now, your treatment is administering albumin and vasoconstrictors. And in the United States, this is probably, again, going to be either norepinephrine in an ICU or it's going to be octreotide combined with midodrine. But importantly, there's a very, very high failure rate. Most of these patients end up needing TIPS or transplant with possibly using albumin dialysis as a bridge. So finally, let's talk about albumin. Uh, there's lots of different reasons why we might consider using albumin, but the definitive reasons to use albumin are if you diagnose a patient with SBP, giving them albumin at the time of diagnosis improves their mortality. If you're taking off more than five liters of fluid from a paracentesis, giving albumin prevents post-paracentesis circulatory dysfunction. And if you make the diagnosis of type 1 hepatorenal syndrome, giving albumin improves mortality as well. There are some studies showing that if you give it in infections other than SBP, there may be some benefit, at least towards less AKI, although there may not be less mortality benefit. So our take-home points, remember variceal bleeding will test your airway skills. Always think about screening for infection in your patients with cirrhosis. When you find hepatic encephalopathy, even if it's confounding another diagnosis, it's important to treat it. Please don't place chest tubes in hepatic hydrothorax and think about the indications for giving albumin. And finally, to resolve our case, our patient did not receive a TEG-guided uh, resuscitation. He actually got one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation. Emergent endoscopy was unable to stop the bleeding, so a balloon device was placed and the patient was sent emergently for a TIPS. Paracentesis subsequently did reveal SBP, which was treated with antibiotics and albumin. He subsequently underwent multiple thoracentesis for his hepatic hydrothorax and spent one month in the ICU, but survived and is currently listed for liver transplant. So with that, I thank you very much, and I'll be glad to take any questions that are in the chat. Well, we did get some good questions from off the, uh, the live stream, and so I'm going to leave those in here because I think they're very relevant. Uh, and asking the questions is going to be a couple of our faculty development fellows, Dr. Samantha King and also Dr. Dominic Williams. Is in your resuscitation, where does TXA fall, if at all? N not a whole lot of utility uh, in giving TXA for, for these patients. If you are doing TEG-guided resuscitation, there are some parameters that might push you to giving a little bit of TXA, but in general, uh, very little role for TXA in acute variceal bleeding. And then we have a couple questions regarding some of the um, medications in addition to blood. In terms of medications, we don't have um, some of the other options internationally, but we do use octreotide. And we were asked, in addition to using octreotide, do we often add on norepi? And then what are your thoughts on octreotide versus vasopressin? You know, a lot of it is really dictated by what you have available in, in your shop. So certainly here in the United States, we predominantly use octreotide. Uh, much more than, than vasopressin. It's been studied a little bit more, honestly, because there's a lot of bias in where the studies take place. So a lot of them take place here in places that have octreotide. So octreotide is the one that's been studied the best. 
vaso vasopressin should work. And as I mentioned, if you're a place that has turtlepressin, that has actually been shown to have a mortality benefit, although the side effect profile of turtlepressin is a little bit higher than that of octreotide. And one comment that I'll throw in is back when I was in training, vasopressin was, I would say, routinely used for these type of patients. They're really sick patients. We didn't really use or know about octreotide back then. One of the pearls to keep in mind about vasopressin is that it does produce diffuse vasoconstriction, including coronary vasoconstriction. And so the traditional recommendations have been that if you're going to use vasopressin, you put the patient also on at least a low-dose nitroglycerin drip to maintain some patency of the coronary vessels. I don't know whether that's been studied really well or not, but that's been the general recommendation that I grew up with through training. And so it's something to consider if you're going to use vasopressin in one of these patients, especially in somebody who has underlying coronary disease. And then in patients who are presenting with fever and variceal bleed, do you opt for ceftriaxone or do you go more broad than that? Yeah, so ceftriaxone is, is certainly well studied in, in variceal bleed. So in a patient that simply had a, a variceal bleed, I would probably give ceftriaxone, but your point is well taken that if they have fever, you're not sure it, where the source of infection is, I would absolutely go very broad in these patients. And bouncing off of that, do you add on things like vancomycin for MRSA coverage or other types of medicines? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's really dictated by what your uh, individual patient profile looks like and what your local uh, resistant race looks like as well. So certainly I would absolutely try to look through their microbiologic data because again, these patients do spend a lot of time in healthcare facilities. Uh, so I would certainly look to see if they have been colonized in the past and, and, and have a low threshold for adding that on. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. My thanks to Joe Martinez for really a fantastic lecture on a very important topic. And I hope to get him back for some future lectures or discussions on EMCast. Now, Let's change gears a little bit and let's focus our attention on the elderly, specifically GU emergencies in the elderly. Our next topic is actually going to be a review article that was uh, published in a recent issue of Emergency Medicine Clinics of North America, published by Nicole Soria and someone that you all are very familiar with, Dr. Danya Koja. And uh, as you know, Danya has a very strong interest in geriatric emergency medicine, and this issue was actually focused on geriatric emergencies, and this article was on genitourinary emergencies in the older patient. And surprise, joining us today is Danya Koja, and also a newcomer to EMCAST, Dr. Rebecca Rubenstein. Rebecca is, or Becca, as she likes to be called, is one of our chiefs. She's actually a graduate of our residency program. And so I hate calling him chief residents because we're not residents. So I just call Becca a chief. And she's also doing a faculty development fellowship this year and is one of our junior faculty and just a fantastic person and super smart. And uh, you will get to enjoy listening to her. She's a fantastic speaker also. And we'll be playing one of her lectures coming up from our recent Crashing Patient Conference as well. So anyway, Dania, Becca, thanks for joining us. And Becca, welcome to the EMCast. I'm glad you're joining us today. Thanks so much. Anyway, we are uh, going to get started. And Dania, let me throw things out to you. First of all, you've never spoken before about GU emergencies. Why did you pick this topic? Why, why is it important to you or why should it be important to the rest of us? The reason that I got interested in this topic is that 
we have this, this thing where we want to call everything a urinary tract infection, older adults. Oh, they're confused. It must be a UTI. Oh, they're this. Oh, it must be a UTI. They felt it must be a UTI, which makes no sense. And it really bothers me because then we're missing out on the actual problems. So this is my pet peeve or one of my many pet peeves. And that's where the idea stemmed where Dr. Nicole Soria and I were like, hey, why don't we talk about other genitourinary emergencies in older adults other than this whole UTI thing, which trust me, I will rant about for the rest of this podcast. We're going to have a podcast, which is entirely devoted to all of your pet peeves, which <laughs> we've accumulated over the years. Becca, what about things from your standpoint? I'm interested in a small rant miniseries as well. Uh, but I thought, I just thought this was a great article. I love when I can take something I read or something I learn about and quickly apply it to my next shift. I think it's safe to say that all of us have taken care of an older adult with a do you complain in our last shift or maybe the shift before it? Uh, and there's some great simple things we can, we can do to improve the care uh, of our older adults. I think it's only one of the things we'll talk about, but it is very challenging and, and frustrating and confusing to me after all these years. I, I still am uncertain about when to go ahead and call it a UTI and when not to. So hopefully our discussion today will help clarify some of that. So, but let's first of all, start with the general approach in terms of the history and physical, what are some pearls you can share from this article, Becca? Absolutely. So a lot of the things we do with taking a history in our general population is applied to our older adults as well. Uh, we want to get a great a history of the, the symptoms that they're presenting with, the timeline of those symptoms. And if they were coming in on their own or they were being sent in from a facility, as a lot of these older adults are coming in from assisted living facilities or long-term care facilities, if they are unable to describe their symptoms, it's great to be able to get some additional history from a family member who maybe knows them well and can recognize some things that have changed. One of the most important things you can do with our older population is doing a med rec. A good med rec can save you a lot of time and kind of help you get to the, the diagnosis a little bit faster, especially since this population tends to be on a good number of medications reconciliation or just running through the list of medicines is so important. You know, I, I think the most profound example I can remember a number of years ago, a patient came in with that typical brown bag of medicine, you know, that we've all seen and we just opened it up and there was 26 different bottles of medications in there. And unbelievably, she was compliant with every one of them. And amongst the medications were one bottle of metoprolol and another bottle of Lopressor. She didn't realize it was the same drug at two different doses. She was on both Cardizem and Diltiazem and, you know, other, you know, polypharmacy issues like that. And it was no wonder that she was bradycardic and could barely keep her eyes open. So that is really important. Becca, did you have anything about the physical exam you wanted to say? Yes, definitely. I think it's it's easy. I don't want to say lazy, but it's easy to get lazy with our physical exams in, in older people. And part of that has to do with that it's harder to get adequate exposure on them. They're, diff, they're more difficult to move. You potentially need uh, some assistance from you know a nurse, a medical student, a resident, something to help you help them get into the position you need to adequately uh, examine them. And one of those important things is is good exposure, especially of the abdomen and even of the perennial area, especially if they're coming in with a complaint that could potentially be related to that system. 
Absolutely true, especially with those hallway patients. It's so easy to just ignore the importance of getting them undressed. Danya, any pearls from your standpoint? I think that it's definitely important to adequately expose our older adults so that we can examine them well. And that's not just for patients who are there for what we think of as a GEO complaint. So if we have an older adult who's coming in with fever or abdominal pain, confusion, the answer may actually be in examining their GU area. So definitely think of that adequate exposure and adequate exam in all of the older adults that are coming in, unless they're there for something completely straightforward, like I stubbed my toe. All right. Well, let's start with the most common issue or the most common diagnosis that causes confusion, and that is urinary tract infection. Daniel, what can you teach us about urinary tract infection? So I think an important concept that we tend to forget about is the concept of asymptomatic bacteriuria, which by definition is when somebody has bacteriuria with no symptoms. So their culture, their urine culture is positive for bacteria, which in the emergency department land is translated to the urine microscopy showing positive bacteria and the patient having no symptoms. And those patients are frequently confused with UTIs. They're treated. We're doing a whole bunch of things that we shouldn't do. And I think one of the biggest reasons we misdiagnose this and and kind of treat that inappropriately is because we underestimate how common this is. 20% of people in the community, so 20% of older adults, one out of every five, and 50% of those in long-term care facility are going to have asymptomatic bacteriuria. So they're just walking around, no symptoms, no issues whatsoever. They just have bacteria in their urine. And then in patients with indwelling catheters, this percentage is even higher. So if you're thinking about it, quite a few of your older adults are going to have this. Problem is we see bacteria in the urine and then we freak out and we're like, oh, we have to treat this because we have to fix it. But the IDSA, the Infection Disease Society of America says you don't need to. And the problem is two things. One, there's all these people who are getting antibiotics that they don't need. So then they come back on somebody else's shift with C. diff. And then the other bigger problem, in my opinion, is that when they're coming in with a symptom, that's not actually this urine bacteria situation. And we attribute it to that and say, oh, it's just a UTI. We treat this quote unquote UTI and we miss the real diagnosis. Things like people coming in from fever from their cholecystitis and we treat this bacteria in the urine that's not really causing any symptoms. Or somebody coming in with delirium from medication overdoses or polypharmacy or some other cause. And what we're treating is this bacteria in the urine and giving them even more medications on board. And that is the problem. Becca, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I agree with that. I think part of this stems from so much of our job being, you know, we're the people who make the initial diagnosis and we do like solving problems and fixing things. That's how we kind of ended up in this field, I think. And so being able to say, oh, this is a UTI that gives us a an answer to a question as opposed to being okay with potentially, you know, saying, I don't know what this is, but I know I'm going to be doing certain things to move in the right direction to figure it out. So those are great pearls. I I guess from my standpoint, Danya and Becca, one of the things that I always wonder about is you're doing your workup and I know that we're not supposed to treat asymptomatic bacteriuria, but the fact is the patient has come in for some complaint, so they're not asymptomatic. And, you know, how do you decide whether their symptoms might be caused by the urinary tract infection? Maybe the delirium is due to the UTI. We know that elderly present so atypically. Should we just 
maybe treat it if everything else has been excluded or you really don't treat it at all. Any thoughts about that? I think it really depends on the situation, right? So if the patient is septic and they're incredibly ill, then fine, treat this thing that may or may not be a UTI, but keep your differential wide. Keep looking for that possible cholecystitis, meningitis, other cause for their sepsis, instead of getting this tunnel vision and focusing on this presumed UTI. If the patient is able to very clearly verbalize their symptoms and their symptoms today are not related to a urine infection. So like they don't have frequency, they don't have urgency, they don't have suprapubic pain, nothing of that nature. Then, and they're well appearing, they have follow-up, then don't treat them, have them follow up in 24 to 48 hours with a primary care doctor or come back to your ED and see if they continue to feel well. And at that point, if they don't, or if they have symptoms then they can be treated. So it really depends on what end of that spectrum you're talking about, Sure. how sick they are and what else is happening. All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, There's a great pearls. So now let's talk about urinary incontinence. As emergency physicians, we think incontinence, uh, our first thought, of course, is could this be spinal cord pathology? But of course, in geriatric patients, it's definitely less clear because it's just more common for it to be a normal part of uh, their their status or, or, or aging, I guess. Any thoughts about that, Becca? Yeah, absolutely. It can be confusing, especially with the fear of, of missing or underdiagnosing uh, incontinence stemming from a neurological issue like something from the spinal cord. But in reality, 20% of people living in the community over 65 have some sort of incontinence and up to 75% of people living in long-term care facilities have some type of incontinence. So it's very, very, very important for you to know their baseline and ask very specifically when they have issues with voiding. Understanding the types of incontinence is very important as well. There's a, a great mnemonic diapers actually, which we'll go through and I'll talk about briefly after this, but the, the main categories of incontinence are urgency, that I can't quite make it to the bathroom. Stress incontinence, I always remember as the sneeze and pee, some sort of intra-abdominal force and it comes out. Or overflow incontinence where you are incontinent of your urine once your bladder exceeds the volume that it's able to hold. Uh, and then on top of that, they can also have mixed incontinence the diapers mnemonic is, I'll just go through it quickly. The D stands for deliria, dementia, or diabetes. The I, infection, inflammation. A, atrophic vaginitis. P, pharmacology, as we briefly talked about before. E, excessive urine output, uh, like if they're taking a diuretic. R, for restricted mobility. And S, for stool impaction or some sacral nerve pathology. And that mnemonic can really help you narrow down your diagnosis of acute urinary incontinence based on the way that your patient is presenting and some of the underlying conditions that they have. Love mnemonics. Danya, any additional thoughts? Definitely important to figure out the timeline of their presenting concern, which is the incontinence. And definitely important also to keep in mind that it may be embarrassing, especially for older adults who are functional and independent to just come out there and say, oh, I have urinary incontinence. So it's definitely important to ask delicately and clarify that this is just not an embarrassing thing. It's actually very common. And all you're trying to figure out is how you can help take care of them today. All right. So let's talk about the opposite of incontinence, and that's going to be urinary retention. 
How can we approach this condition in older adults? It certainly is a, a common thing that we see, especially in men. Danya, any thoughts about that? I think the most important thing to remember is that there's no magic number at which we call this urinary retention. The clinically significant post-void residual volume is really dependent on the clinical context. 100 mLs can be a problem and up to 500 mLs can be okay and normal. So it really depends on what the patient's baseline is and how symptomatic they are from that. So there's no just like magic number. If you see that, you should freak out or be worried. There's a ton of reasons where older adults or just people in general can have urinary retention. Urinary infection is a big one. Prostatitis as well in men. Constipation is something we got to think about and treat, and that's definitely going to help with that retention. And medications are a big one. And you know what my favorite medications is in older adults, and that's usually the one that causes all of the retention, which is the evil, evil antihistamines. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Becca, any additional thoughts? Yeah, I think if I'm going to go on the pet peeve train, I would say that I think it's worth taking the time to calculate your own bladder volume with your ultrasound as opposed to using a bladder scanner because they can often be inaccurate. And there's, uh, it's worth, I think, taking the time to do it correctly to know exactly what you're looking at. Definitely in the ED, we need to be performing spontaneous voiding trials before we let people leave if we're concerned about retention. How long we have to wait for them to be able to void is a little bit up in the air and depends on the context and their presentation. It's very important to make sure that they have good access to follow-up care and very strict return precautions should they have recurrence of their retention. If we're discharging someone with a catheter that we put in, this is something that can really affect their life going forward. It puts them at higher risk for infection and other complications with that catheter. And so this is potentially something life-changing. And they need to, if we're doing that, they need to have very good close follow-up, ideally within three days and if they're unable to do so, which sometimes it can be difficult during the, the pandemic to get a primary care appointment, I would encourage them to return to the emergency department to be reevaluated. Awesome. Danya, any other comments? I think that an important cause of retention in older women that we don't often think of in the emergency department is pelvic organ prolapse, which is more common in women above the age of 70. Most women are not going to volunteer this information unless specifically asked. And some might not even know that they're having pelvic organ prolapse. And you're only going to find that out on a physical examination where you're adequately looking at the genital area to try to figure out the cause of that retention. Now, if a patient is symptomatic, so they're having urinary retention, or they're having a chronic retention that they're describing to you, then those are the patients with pelvic organ prolapse that are going to need referral to GYN for a pessary or estrogen or surgery or something of that nature. But if a patient just has a feeling of pressure or you just incidentally find a bulge from that pelvic organ prolapse and they're not having any complaints, those patients do not need referral for treatment. Well, that was a really great review of the article. And let's finish up with some quick take-home points. Uh, Becca, what would you say are your key take-home points for the listeners? Absolutely. I would say, first and foremost, a good med rec, taking the time to do a thorough history on your patients, including a sexual history, exposing for a physical exam, and making sure that we're calculating our creatinine clearance when we're prescribing antibiotics in certain situations, and make sure that we're only prescribing antibiotics that are truly needed. 
Anya, key take on points? Don't let those bacteria that are just hanging out in the urine and not causing any problems distract you from the real problem. That's possibly asymptomatic bacteria. Please don't call it a UTI unless you're sure this is a UTI. And if the patient is sick and you're not sure it's a UTI, just keep looking for the cause and don't get tunnel vision with that. And again, I love that diapers mnemonic. I have not heard that one before. We, we will be sure to put that in the show notes. And again, Danya, Becca, thanks so much for your time and taking us through this article. We've never done an article or a topic like this before. And I think it it is it's not something that's super high risk the way heart attack and stroke are and things like that that we often talk about, but it is very common. And these common things are so important to know about also. So again, thanks. And I look forward to getting both of you back on the EMCast. And Becca, welcome to the EMCast. And I hope to hear from you a lot more in the near future. Our final topic for this month's EMCast is going to be a recorded lecture from our recent Crashing Patient Conference. And the topic at hand here is uh, psychiatric emergencies. One of our faculty and also faculty development fellows, Dr. Dominic Williams, is developing a niche in psychiatric emergencies. There's not too many people out there that have really focused their careers on that, so we're very lucky to have him. And he gave a really great overview of this topic. He covers a lot of different things, and I think there's a really a lot of take-home pearls from this. You're going to be hearing a lot more from Dominic in, I'm sure, the coming months and years on psychiatric and behavioral emergencies as it's such an important topic in our specialty. So anyway, let me hand things over to Dom. Go ahead and take it away. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to me talk today about psychiatric emergencies. So join me in this journey through a potpourri of uh, mental health crises that we can discuss together and how we can better serve our patients, our co-workers, and uh, ultimately ourselves. We have several objectives. First of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the risks in the psychiatric care of patients. Then also we can move on to some of the treatment options, some of the definitions. But ultimately, this top box here is what I want to talk about most. I want to open a dialogue about our psychiatric care, whether it be here in Baltimore, where we uh, struggle on a daily basis with making sure we appropriately disposition these patients, or in any one of the countries tuning in currently, I want us to start a conversation about how we can do better and what steps we can take to improve the care and the awareness of our uh, psychiatric patients. This time last year, we were joking about this being the only online conference we were hoping to do, and now I'm still faced with an almost empty room with cameras pointing at me and very few faces to smile and encourage me as I'm talking. So COVID has impacted us as healthcare professionals. COVID has increased our burnout rate. COVID has hurt us in ways that we didn't expect, with isolation, with with being estranged from family members, people that we were used to be able to meet face-to-face, and we're now struggling to keep in contact with them digitally. COVID also affects our psychiatric patients in many ways, uh, which we will touch on during this, uh, this short talk here. And I want you to keep everything we're doing at the moment in, in the context of COVID, because it's truly changing the way we practice medicine in many ways and the opportunities we have now to alter our practice to allow our psychiatric patients the best outcomes they can possibly have. 
in terms of definition, when we have a psychiatric emergency, this is an acute change. There are many patients that have chronic psychiatric needs, whether it be through depression, mood disorders, or other, other difficulties that they struggle with. But this acute change has consequences. And these consequences can be for the patient themselves, if we think about suicide attempts, or they can be consequences for others. And it's the others that makes this a little bit of a different topic to most of medicine. We don't generally speak about the consequences to others of the diabetic emergency or of the cardiac emergency or of many other metabolic emergencies that might occur in your emergency department. But we do when it comes to psychiatric medicine. We think about others, others' safety, whether it be those caring for them, those looking after them at home, interacting with them on the street, or otherwise being involved with these patients' lives. And so there's a unique perspective that psychiatric medicine brings to our emergency medicine portfolio, and I think it's worth emphasizing here. When we look at the, the jigsaw puzzle that is psychiatric medicine, we consider these seven being probably some of the broader categories that we need to discuss. In terms of what impacts our patients most, I'm sure all of us can think of recent cases where we've met a patient that was suicidal. Every one of us has, note, has noted a patient where, that has agitation and violence in our departments. There's delirium uh, occurring in multiple patients in multiple areas of our hospital at any one moment. There's neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is perhaps more unique and rare, but because of that, requires a little bit more attention to make sure that we're aware of the nuances. And then there's serotonin syndrome that we will discuss later. And then more of catch-all categories in terms of overdosing psychiatric medications, which are essential yet all simultaneously dangerous for the, for the patient. And finally, uh, overdose or withdrawal from addicting substances. Before we take our, our minds fully into the world of psychiatric medicine, I want to take a moment just to stop and consider the fact that every patient that presents to us may have an organic reason for their acute psychiatric change. And so there's six major categories that I want to think about. First of all, we have neurological. There's infections, injuries, potential strokes or seizure disorders, hepatic encephalopathy that we heard about earlier today, consequences of Huntington's disease, levodopatoxicity as, as a treatment for Parkinson's, or even heavy metal uh, injuries secondary to Wilson's disease. We have infectious symptoms. And once again, COVID rears its ugly head as causing acute psychosis. We have the systemic impacts of syphilis or tuberculosis. And then HIV AIDS with the devastating neurological injury that, that can occur as a result of the chronic infection of HIV. We also have metabolic and endocrine emergencies with hypoglycemia, hypoxia, electrolyte imbalance, and hypocholesterolemia as being a major part of the matter of the brain, creating altered mental status in these patients and causing psychiatric symptoms. We have thyrotoxicosis, hypothyroidism, Cushing syndrome, and hyperparathyroidism. However, there's also nutritional disease. And when we think about our patients, we have to realize that 20% of our patients may be pediatric, and one in five children, particularly those presenting to the emergency department, have nutritional deficiencies. Are they a result, uh, their symptoms today as a result of malnutrition, potentially? What about our alcoholic? Have they been consuming enough B12 and folic acid? Have they had enough thiamine and niacin? We have to consider those things when we approach our psychiatric patient before we push them over to a psychiatric area of the emergency department or before we refer them to psychiatry as being medically clear. Finally, there's hyperthermia, which can cause acute mental status changes, and hypothermia that can similarly do the same. So once we've shifted from that box of medical 
diagnoses that we can run through pretty quickly with nearly all of our psychiatric patients. We should then move into the seven jigsaw puzzle pieces of acute psychiatric emergencies. I'd like to start with suicidality. My concerns with suicidality are boiled down to three short numbers. The first, to make this global, is that in, the, in 2019, because 2020 was such a terrible year, I don't think that we can uh, include all the data there, and we haven't actually received much of it. In 2019, 0.7 million people killed themselves. 0.7 million. To bring that closer to home, for those of us sitting in the United States right now, that's 47,500 people that could be alive if they hadn't hurt themselves. 47,500. That makes committing suicide in the top 10 of deaths in the United States. It's been working its way up over the past several years. And now it sits at number 10. And this is an issue that we have to deal with as emergency medicine providers. And when we think about the amount of attention that we spend on things like violence prevention, responding to trauma, going out of our way to make sure that people are safe and protected from one another, I want to look at that last statistic, 2.5 to 1. You are 2.5 times more likely to hurt yourself than to be murdered by somebody else. The enemy within, or the difficulties that you might have, put you more susceptible than being hurt by other people. And that's a statistic that I don't think we walk around with in our minds on a, on a regular basis. I don't think that we're aware, perhaps, as much as we need to be about how prevalent and how difficult it is to manage the suicidal patient. With this in mind, I also want to draw attention to one other fact, and that is that as an emergency provider, you are also 2.5 times more susceptible than the average population to damaging mental health yourself. And so today, while we talk about others, I also want you to take a moment for yourself and to make sure that you have all the resources available. We all are aware of the ways that we risk stratify these individuals. And the data points to the fact that most of the people that are presenting to the emergency department with psychiatric needs have been seen before by psychiatric uh, providers. They've also typically made previous attempts when we meet them in the emergency department or have been considering them. In fact, if we want to consider mental health as a whole, there are only two mental health diseases that meet those criteria that do not increase your risk for suicidal ideation or suicide attempts, and those are intellectual disability and dementia, which arguably could fall into a, a neurological category itself. If we wanted to look at the common themes of all our suicidal patients, it would be themes of hopelessness and loss. It would be themes of losing a job or having an illness that is now devastating to you and you are unable to cope. There's no sense of the future. There's no ability to be able to respond or cope. The strategies that you have have failed you. However, this third point, the fact that 50 to 80% of those that attempt suicide have made contact with a physician or a family member and warned them means that this does not have to be the final situation. There is hope. In fact, when asked, suicidal patients are actually happy that you have brought up their mental health and asked them directly about suicide, even though they didn't present necessarily for those concerns. When asked later, after being treated for their suicide and depression, patients report that they are relieved that there was a physician or a provider available to speak to them about their mental health, whether they were willing to approach it directly or to having to be oblique with their needs. So I want to encourage and empower each of you to ask 
whether it be your patient or one another about your mental health and how you're doing as an individual and how the patient is doing and functioning and what their coping mechanisms are while they're at home. I'm not getting into the politics of this situation, but when you think that 80 to 90% of our communication occurs non-verbally and now with our facial expressions, and now I've covered up a third of my face, you can imagine that our psychiatric patients are now creating a little bit more of paranoia and a little bit more concern. And so already, as emergency providers, we are on the back foot walking into our patient's room. That look of, of calm reassurance that we might be able to give a patient, the, the prolonged eye contact might be now misread as something aggressive because they can't see our face. And the micro-expressions that we make are so important. And so because of this, our safety is now at an all-time low. We have providers, emergency physicians, reporting that 50% of them have been assaulted during their careers. And this statistic at 70% is even worse for emergency nurses. And this is something that we have to deal with on a regular basis. These patients are typically unemployed, under 40, lower socioeconomic status, non-compliant with their psychiatric history and history of the same, uh, psychiatric medications and history of the same. And I want to mention that history of the same part because I'm sure we're familiar with those that have been violent towards us in the emergency department. There is safety mechanisms within the EMR, and I'm not encouraging you putting those in there to be judgmental towards the patient, but to raise a red flag of safety for our fellow providers and our nursing staff and, and supplementary support. It's very important that we provide an area of safety for our patients, but also for our staff so that we can provide everyone the best care in their, in their most needful time. If, however, medications are used, I want to introduce an interesting concept. That is, that in the data, it shakes out that Haldol and lorazepam, as I like to refer to them on a daily basis, are actually equivalent when it comes to the safe sedation of an acutely violent patient. The important thing is the dosing. Now, there are several medications that other patients take that prolong the QTC. So I can understand if you would lean away from Haldol and towards lorazepam as your method of choice. It's also important to communicate with your nursing staff that these medications are not tranquilizer darts. This will not occur immediately. But I, and there are other options. If your patient is compliant to take oral medications, these are also choices for you. However, we are talking about the crashing patient who might be crashing into you physically at this time. And therefore, I recommend high numbers of people, maximum, uh, maximum effort with verbal de-escalation. But when it comes to medications, redosing on a regular basis until we can get a suitable response is an appropriate, as an appropriate method. Ultimately, I don't mind how we approach safety in the emergency department, but there have to be building blocks. We have to have a plan. We have to ensure that our psychiatric patients are placed appropriately in an area where they can be seen and others treating them can be seen. We have to make sure there are methods in place of calling others to the bedside, of ensuring that we can exit when we need to. And these are topics that we can discuss in depth another time. But I want you to take this away today and recognize that when you're seeing an acutely violent patient, your safety is matters, their safety matters, and the safety of all those around you. When we talk about delirium, it actually probably is important to refer back to our prior six body systems in terms of, dose, uh, in terms of diagnoses. Delirium in and of itself is a waxing and waning altered mental status, right, that is, can be treated very gently with lower doses of haloperidol and lorazepam. 
I would like to point out that if you're in, in con concerned that there's any substance withdrawal picture here, I would highly recommend using lorazepam, as this is also going to help treat any uh, alcohol withdrawal, which may be a common uh, situation in your city or area of practice, and it comes with less uh, difficulties in terms of QTC. And if it's used in isolated manner with only benzodiazepines and not complex by another uh, polysubstance material, then it actually its, its likelihood of causing respiratory depression is quite low. But most importantly, the things we can do for our psychiatric patients in terms of delirium are to help them be reoriented and to remind them gently and often of where they are, who they are, what they are, and why they're doing what they're doing. It turns out that these simple things actually impact their care significantly. And because the patients typically stay longer on the inpatient side, we can learn uh, a lot from our, our colleagues on the floors during this. However, with boarding at an all-time high and psychiatric patients spending 80% more time in the emergency department than their non-psychiatric counterparts, we need to start doing this for our patients. When it's morning, we introduce them to the fact that it's the morning. It's, when it's a new day, we tell them about it. When we can bring them their routine lunch, dinner, breakfast, whatever it might be, we need to discuss this with them and we need to help prevent delirium rather than react to it. Now, I almost skipped over substance abuse because if it's lack of frequency within the population, the fact that we never really see any of these patients, and the fact that you know, it's, it's not something that uh, is even you know, rife in our population today. But at the risk that not being on video doesn't allow my dry sense of humor to come across. Or his sarcasm, by the way. I do think we should address those three tidbits that allow us to treat substance abuse a little more effectively from our from a safety concern, but also from a, an interventional perspective. If you are worried about violence in a patient and there is any sense of alcohol intoxication or withdrawal, cocaine intoxication or withdrawal, or PCP, phenylcycladine, then we need to be more aware that these patients have a tendency towards violence. Again, no judgment, just clinical data putting a putting a emphasis on the fact that this should increase your index of suspicion. I need this for your safety, and I need this for the safety of those around you. Furthermore, if there's a patient, again, with a sedative hypnotic, like a benzo, barbiturate, or alcohol, and you're concerned about respiratory depression, I want you to consider the fact that there's probably an, an alternative uh, agent involved in your toxidrome there. And that it's unlikely an isolated uh, usage here to cause complete respiratory depression. I know in Baltimore we have a fair amount of opioid usage. And so our, our streets are full of naloxone or Narcan as well. And patients will receive this on a regular basis before they arrive in our department. When, when we have alcohol on board as well or another sedative hypnotic, I want you to consider increasing your differential when you see a complete respiratory depression, as this can be important for the safety of your patient and many other and the others around you. Finally, I want to talk about delirium tremens. I do have some concerns about this diagnosis. It is something that is as a result of withdrawal from significant alcohol usage and can create some significant problems for our patients. Now, Previously, when maybe we've been able to, to admit these patients and get them moved out of our department into a detox unit, these issues of fluid balance and refeeding have, have not been a problem. But if these patients are beginning to stay in our department for more than 48 hours, more than 72 hours, we need to start considering how this is going to impact their care. And regular reassessment and regular assessment of their, their fluid status, their electrolyte balance, and their volume input and output is important 
is this alcohol usage and withdrawals is going to create a significant diuretic effect. We also need to ensure that we are not missing the boat here. It's often we can find that with delirium tremens, it can begin 24 to 72 hours after their last drink. I feel like in some of our more intense alcoholics, it, it starts even earlier than this. It can reach out up to seven days. But I want to warn you against writing someone off as only having delirium tremens if they're presenting with a, a seizure or a symptom greater than four days. Reason for this is that we need to open up the regular delirium box again and relook at those six-body systems we discussed before. I think it's important that we don't box our patients up, particularly our psychiatric patients, to one thing. And that becomes increasingly relevant when we move on to talk about our psychoactive medication overdose. When we think about TCAs or carbamazepine, there should be one thought in your mind, and that is cardiac monitoring. The reason for this is the blockade of the sodium channels. And with Dr. Matu in the room, I'm very aware of uh, the need to uh, make sure I get my facts on EKGs correct. So we'll discuss that in just a moment. With the side effects of medications, I add this in purely because a lot of the patients come in with some severe fear about the effects of their psychoactive medications. And often, it doesn't have to be an overdose that's creating some of this dystonia or tolicolis. And the immense relief that you can provide the patient with uh, diphenhydramine or promethazine is very important in winning a rapport and a trust with, with these patients. Terror in and of itself does not mean that the patient has intentionally overdosed. It may be a result of a, of a side effect of the medication, which is why getting collateral information and learning as much as you can about your patient's history is very important when it comes to psychiatric medicine. To briefly look at a TCA overdose, because no lecture is complete without an EKG, I want you to notice the widened QRS. And I want you to come back to that in just a moment. I want you to look at the tall R wave in AVR and notice that it has to be greater than 3 millimeters. And I want you to notice that the ratio of R to S has to be greater than 0.7. But I want you to forget about that for a moment and then focus on this, which is the QRS numbers that you need to follow when you're treating a TCA overdose. My concerns for seizures are greater when the, and shake out in the data, are greater when the milliseconds are greater than 100 in your QRS. When they reach greater than 160, I want you to be very keenly aware of arrhythmias. And for those of us at UMMC, they do not go off monitoring for testing. They stay on the monitor because there are significant risk for dysrhythmia, and we need to be able to treat that as swiftly as possible. Finally, I want to talk about two disease processes that we can interchange uh, on a regular basis and were probably the bane of your existence during medical school. The first is neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and this often occurs in young white males who are taking their medications as they should be and have been recently uptitrated on their dosing. It typically presents as a gradual onset with a prolonged course and often has diffuse rigidity associated with your neuromuscular exam. Uh, and the word that we often see on exams as a buzzword is lead pipe rigidity. The re reflexes are very decreased. The pupils are appropriate. And the reason for this disease process is a hypermetabolic reaction to dopamine antagonists. And we talk about that tetrad, which is not essential for diagnosis, but the tetrad of rigidity, the lead pipe uh, extremities that we've, that we've discussed, altered mental status, hypothermia, and autonomic instability that often manifests itself as hypertension. The data is kind of 
um, conflicting in how frequently this occurs, perhaps due to problems with tracking the actual compliance of their dosaging or even the dosage changes themselves within the psychiatric clinics. But it's estimated to be around 3%. But once this syndrome does occur, fatality can be 1 in 10, which is significantly high for these patients. So recognizing this potential disease process is huge in terms of impacting the life and stability of our psychiatric patients. Before we draw any conclusions to treatment, I want to discuss the counterpart, serotonin syndrome, the oft-confused and often difficult to diagnose uh, disease process that can severely change the, the, the outlook in our psychiatric patients' lives. The main difference between serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome is its abrupt onset and its rapidly resolving course. And you will notice that these patients are tremoring and shaking. But wait, there may be an underlying tremor in your neuroleptic malignant syndrome patient which might mean that their diffuse rigidity is actually more of a cogwheel rigidity. Is that as sensitive as we can be? And wait, we don't always know the course of our patients when they're coming in. We can't always get a good history from these patients because they're altered. And sometimes finding collateral information is difficult. And so because of this, the diagnostic conundrum becomes a little more clouded. So when we talk about serotonin syndrome, we're told to stop and support the patient. If they do require intubation, serotonin syndrome patients demand a non-depolarizing paralysis because they are at much higher risk for a hyperkalemia than their non-serotonin overdose counterparts. Finally, and this was news to me when I was doing reading about this, serotonin syndrome, when left unmitigated, can actually be a, a novel cause of DIC. And for those of us familiar with treating patients in DIC, this is not a situation you would like to be in. And it becomes very intensive care, intensive in terms of its care, and can actually happen in almost 10% of patients that are presenting in serotonin syndrome. So because of this, my initial point stands true. Stopping the offending agent is the most important thing that we can do. But ultimately, we took an oath to first do no harm or primum non nocere. And because of this, when I review the data looking at ciproheptadine, looking at dantrolene, looking at bromocryptine. I want us to all to be very careful before we dive right in with these treatments. Did you know that if your patient's having a serotonin syndrome and you thought it was a neuroleptic malignant syndrome and you give bromocryptine, you've just killed them? Did you know that if you take any one of these medications of reversal and you get it wrong, you might actually make their situation worse? So what I would recommend, and what does seem to shake out in the literature, is giving benzodiazepines, which is ultimately the answer to a lot of our toxicological questions, and thankfully is also the situation here. However, these are patients that I would very much not recommend you going this alone. Poison control is ready and waiting and willing to help with these situations. I would like you to consider getting your intensive care team involved as quickly as possible with these patients, because making the exact diagnosis is very important. I would also encourage getting collateral on every psychiatric patient that you meet, especially those in acute crisis. It's very important that we take care and diagnose with acute accuracy so as not to worsen the patient's situation here. So if I wanted to give takeaways for this lecture, which is something that I, I think 
all of these points are very near and dear to my heart, but I would like you to consider that lorazepam is equal to Haldol in the acute agitation setting, both in time of onset and safety profile. I'd like you to remember that QRS length is a predictor in, of seizures and dysrhythmias in TCA overdose and should be regularly monitored. I'd like you to remember that neuroleptic malignant syndrome can occur in up to 3% of individuals with acute, uh, with, that are currently taking psychoactive medications and with a mortality from 10 to 20%. And finally... I'd like you to remember that serotonin syndrome can be a less common cause of DIC. So when you're presented with that undifferentiated patient with their coagulopathy, I'd like you to consider maybe their overdose as part of their presentation today. So thank you for your time, and you have moments to torture me now, so go for it. Uh, we do have a few questions that are coming up. I'll hand things over to Dr. King. We do have a couple questions for you here. Um, first off, how do you calm down nursing staff from pushing more medications after you've already given the first dose? So I think the most important thing to do when you have a situation where there's an agitated patient is to come up with a plan and then verbalize that plan to everybody that is in the room. Whether it be security, whether it be nursing staff, techs, residents, fellows, whoever's floating around in that area needs to be aware that this is the medication we're giving, this is how long we're going to wait until we give the next one, and this is our plan if, if we don't feel that the medication is working. I think that once we set expectations for these situations, we end up having a lot more rapport and, and uh, over, overall a greater sense of team with the, with the nursing staff. One other thing I would add to that is that if you are restraining a patient, a topic that I would love to talk on but haven't been able to get into today, then the restraints are not forever, right? You can restrain someone to safely perform an action and then remove the restraints. There is an ability, and whether that's security guards, depending on your resources, or whatever it might be, nothing has to be permanent in the setting of this uh, kind of evolving situation. And then another question. For agitation, what are your thoughts on the use of IM ketamine as a part of your protocol? Ketamine can get you into a little bit of, of trouble. I, I think that if it's being discussed amongst your peers and is an appropriate treatment for that facility, it can be situationally appropriate. I, I've definitely had a very nice, slow psychiatric takedown with ketamine that we allowed the patient was moderately compliant, allowed us to inject, was talking to us. But when there's someone that is wild and agitated, I, I, I can, we can get into the topic of excited delirium another time. But when you have those patients, I think ketamine can play into a more autonomic instability. And if you're unclear on what the underlying toxidrome might be for this patient, I think you have to be a little wary with ketamine. And then what are your thoughts on the use of midazolam over lorazepam? So... Again, you have to look at your medication profile and what you have available. Benzodiazepines all tend to work out fairly similar in, in the data. If you want a little more of a you know, faster onset, then you can go for your medication that's going to provide that. If ultimately a benzo in the arm is better than a benzo you are searching for. Therefore, I think that giving the appropriate dose, whether it be midazolam or lorazepam, I think is, is a reasonable uh, choice. And I don't think anyone will fault you depending on what your system has available to you. And then in terms of more drug choices, what are your thoughts on other atypical antipsychotics as opposed to haloperidol? Again, so a lot of this hasn't been studied in the literature, which is why I don't feel comfortable bringing it to a, a kind of a larger stage. But I think there, are, there is room for, the, for further development of use of those. I just don't have the data to back that up yet. 
And then there were some other questions in regards to the dosing of some of the medications, starting with 10 milligrams of haloperidol as opposed to lower or higher doses. Is there a reason for that specific drug dosing recommendation? The reason I used that drug dosing was because of the study that produced the, uh, the results there. I think that the importance of the takeaways there was frequent reassessment and redosing as necessary is as opposed to a specific number. And then last question here um, is, are there certain markers or other things that lead you to want to maybe consult tox in addition to psych when these patients come in? Absolutely. So again, the, the key to a good psychiatric diagnosis is normally a good history, right? And often that comes from the information that you get from EMS, which is very valuable, and also the collateral information you can get from any family available. Now, when you start having to rely on blood work and consulting the toxicology, I definitely would recommend following what they advise, and often that's a, we have a, we have a panel here at the University of Maryland where we, we typically have an overall investigation of what goes into a psychiatric patient's, you know, clearance, and I think that that is a major catch-all. I think that if you have a high index of suspicion, definitely reach out to your specialists and definitely consider that testing modality because ultimately there's a lot riding on this diagnosis, and if you get it wrong, it can, it can have some devastating effects. And then we'll actually one more final wrap-up question. If you had to pick one thing that you could do to help with the care of psychiatric patients in the emergency department, what's the one thing you would change? Honestly, I think environment is hugely important. I think it's really difficult to have an appropriate environment for our psychiatric patients, right? Because we want to have the safety uh, aspect of being able to access them and, and exit from them it, should things go awry. But also, I, I feel sometimes because of the nature of needing to keep tabs on these patients, their privacy is so frequently invaded, um, and they feel like they are being looked at too frequently, and that, thus that can be more agitation for them. So I think working on that is probably one of the things I would say. One more question, Don. Of course. Uh, with regards to NMS, yesterday we had a, a wonderful lecture on treating heat stroke in, in mm-hmm. severely hyperthermic patients, and as we know, NMS... Neuroleptic malignant syndrome can produce fairly high temperatures. Does the treatment of NMS incorporate the same degree of aggressiveness with regards to cooling, the same type of measures, or is it all just medication? So uh, I think that there is, an, there is an element of treating the... So dantrolene can be considered, sorry. Um, dantrolene can definitely be considered. I just don't want us to reach for it immediately without consulting our tox specialists or our pharmacists. I think that there's definitely a need to control the temperature because it, it's part of the tetrad that causes these this syndrome. But I don't know that it should be like ordered immediately as as we have that suspicion. I think it's okay to use the passive and active methods that were kind of considered earlier. Tylenol is less likely to be effective given the mechanism of pyrexia here. And so uh, it definitely is something that we should consider, but not immediately. Well, my thanks once again to Dr. Dominic Williams for a really great overview of such an important topic. And again, I know that we're going to be hearing a lot more from Dom in the coming months and years. All right, folks. Well, it's about time for our summary of the January EM cast. And going back to the beginning, we started out with Dr. Joe Martinez giving his talk at our Crashing Patient Conference about the crashing cirrhotic, a topic that we really haven't covered in the past, but we see it often enough and it's scary enough that we really need to know some of the key pearls. So I'll just try to summarize quickly some of the key points that he made, starting out with the initial resuscitation, of course, We want to think about the ABCs. An airway with these patients is particularly high risk because of the risk for aspiration 
and hemorrhage, which can occlude the airway and result in significant hypoxia. Now, with these patients, first pass success is critical. And I know we say this all the time, but this really is one of those conditions where the most experienced intubator should be doing the intubation to get that airway secure as quickly as possible. Remember to have suction. I've always said to our residents that the two most important pieces of equipment that you can have during any airway maneuver is good suction and an oral airway. In this particular case, Joe really emphasized the importance of having enough suction. Have two or three suction canisters ready if necessary. Make sure everyone has face shields, of course, but have that suction ready to go. Get NG2 placement in place if possible. And also you can try to clear the stomach by using some good prokinetic medications that he talked about. Now, when you give these medications, not the prokinetic medications, but the induction medications and paralytics, he recommended decreasing the induction agent by perhaps up to half and also increasing the paralytic agent, perhaps even doubling it. And the reason is that oftentimes these patients are shocky or hypotensive. And the last thing you want to do is give a big dose, a normal or big dose of an induction agent and drop the pressure precipitously. On the other hand, the last thing you want to do is give a normal dose of a paralytic. And because they're hypotensive, it doesn't get to the target organ and they don't get paralyzed as quickly. So if anything, you're going to go lower on the induction dose and higher on the paralytic. He then talked about some of the various conditions that these patients face. And one of the big ones that we worry about is acute variceal hemorrhage. And again, summarizing quickly, we're going to treat these patients just like traumatic hemorrhage patients with the one to one to one ratio. There is decent evidence to support that. We can use vasoactive medications to reduce the rate of bleeding, octreotide being probably the most common. Octreotide has not been shown to produce any mortality benefit, but it does help with decreasing bleeding. And outside of the United States, there's been some evidence showing mortality benefit to terlipressin. We'll see if that does make it into the U.S. Antibiotics have been shown to decrease mortality. So get some third generation cephalosporins or some good gram negative coverage on board. Make sure you know how to use balloon tamponade, whether it's the Blakemore Singstocken tube or the Linton tube, whatever tube you have, make sure you know how to use it and get gastroenterology involved early. He talked a bit about hepatic encephalopathy. And I think people are pretty familiar with this. Again, the mainstay of treatment is lactulose and a good second line agent is rifaximin. He talked a bit about infections, including spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. I think people are fairly familiar and comfortable with that. Interestingly, he mentioned that of patients admitted to the hospital with cirrhosis, between 30 to 50% will have an infection upon admission or develop an infection during their hospital course. So infections are a really big deal with these patients. He talked a little bit about hepatic hydrothorax and hepatorenal syndrome. Again, these oftentimes, especially hepatorenal syndrome, often triggered by infections. He talked a little bit about indications for albumin. And again, just please review this topic as often as necessary to get comfortable with what you need to do for these really sick patients. Next topic, Dr. Danya Koja and Dr. Rebecca Rubenstein talked about GU emergencies in the elderly. And just uh, some quick but important points we'll go through. The most common GU diagnosis in the elderly is urinary tract infection, but we tend to over-treat. In fact, a lot of these patients have simple asymptomatic bacteriuria, and we over-treat these patients. We don't want to necessarily give antibiotics to these patients. The IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, recommends no treatment for asymptomatic bacteriuria. 
And a lot of patients, a lot of elderly patients, especially those in long-term care facilities, have asymptomatic bacteriuria. So please consider this. Numbers are even higher, more common in patients with indwelling catheters. So if there's no symptoms, really be careful about over-treating. There was a really nice mnemonic that they mentioned, the a differential for different things that cause incontinence. They used the mnemonic diapers, D-I-A-P-E-R-S, real quick. It stands for delirium or diabetes. The I is for infection or inflammation. The A is for atrophic vaginitis. P for various pharmacologic agents. E for excessive urine output. R for restrictive mobility. And S for stool impaction or sacral nerve pathology. Remember, you don't want to miss spinal cord problems with these patients that have urinary incontinence. Same applies for urinary retention. And then moving on to the final topic, Dr. Dominic Williams gave a talk at our Crashing Patient Conference on mental health crises. And this is really, to me at least, one of the really best talks that I've heard on psychiatric emergencies, behavioral emergencies that we have. It was a quick talk, but he went through some really key points. He talked about the importance, again, of making sure to rule out organic causes of psychiatric issues before we settle on simply making a mental health diagnosis. He talked a bit about a number of different things that I'm not going to go through in detail, but he talked about suicide, which is very common and very appropriately, it's receiving a lot more attention in the recent couple of years. Suicide currently is the number 10 cause of death in the United States. That was a bit surprising to me. I didn't realize that it had broken the top 10, but please be on the lookout for colleagues who are feeling depressed and suicidal, kids, teenagers. There's so many different parts of our society that are at increased risk for suicide. Uh, he talked a bit about agitation and delirium and also substance abuse and substance overdose. I'm not going to go through all the details here. But again, substance overdose, very, very important. He talked about overdoses of tricyclics and paying attention to the EKG, the QRS interval, and also the tall R-wave and AVR, both of which can predict bad outcomes from tricyclics. He spent a little time talking about neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome. And again, I'm not going to go through all the details there, but he covered a lot of really, really great take-home points for all of us. And that pretty much does it for the summary for this month. I know we're a bit over time. I really appreciate everybody's attention and commitment to EMCast. I hope these topics have been helpful. And I'm really looking forward to a great 2022, not only from the standpoint of EMCast, but also a safer year, perhaps a COVID-free year. Maybe that's expecting a little bit too much, but a lesser COVID concern type of year. How about that? Until next month, please take care, and I will talk to you again very soon. Bye for now. Hey, thanks for listening to MCAST. And for listening to the end, here's a discount code for you. Use discount code PODCAST for 10% off each year of an annual subscription to emedhome.com.